This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the future award-winning Moranalytics podcast is brought to you by Pulse Cellular. Pulse Cellular was created to give a better option for everyone out there looking for premium wireless phone service for less cost with straightforward plans, no strings attached, no confusing fine print, no BS whatsoever. They got you covered nationwide in the U.S. with unlimited talk and text, with premium fast LTE data plans, hotspot coverage at no additional cost in all 50 states, the Caribbean, Canada, and Mexico. Plans also include unlimited free Wi-Fi calls internationally when calling U.S. lines. There are no credit checks. There are no contracts. There are no overage costs. Like I said, no BS in here at all. Go visit PulseCellular.com. Find out for yourself that life is better with Pulse. Also, today's episode is brought to you by Matt Cundell Voiceovers. Matt Cundell started doing voice radio ads in the 90s. As his career progressed, he began to branch out into voice work for TV films, working with e-learning companies, voice solution groups. By 2015, he started working in voice full-time, and Matt's been killing it ever since. He's now president of the Sound Off Media Company, and if you need TV, radio, online videos, podcasts, telephone, corporate narrations, you name it. Matt Cundell is your guide for voiceovers. I've used Matt's voice for stuff multiple times, and I've been happy each and every single time. He does a fantastic job. Trust me, you can't go wrong with Matt. Go to mattcundell.ca for more information. Let's do it. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moran Analytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, podcast fans, what's going on? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode 128 of the Moran Analytics Podcast, presented by Pulse Cellular. Today is. Friday, June 14, 2019. Thank you as always for listening, for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so. Coming up on today's show, I'm looking forward to this one. I got Thad Brown, News 8 TV and Rochester Sports Director. He's going to be my guest. Got a lot to talk about. Really excited about having him on. First time, by the way, when I taped this interview, it was the first time I actually had talked at that. So I didn't know what to expect. And I was really, really entertained. Very good storyteller. And obviously, we're going to talk Buffalo Bills. But beyond that, kind of like I like to do when I have a sports media guest on this podcast, or an athlete for that matter, going to go beyond just the work that they do 
and give you guys kind of pull back that curtain a little bit, give you an opportunity to know more about Thad. So going to kind of go all the way back to the beginning with him, talk about him growing up near Rochester, what he was into as a kid, big time stat nerd, by the way, loved sports as a kid, big time stat nerd. That's a fun story. Played football and lacrosse in high school. We discussed that. What went into his decision to go to Hofstra for college? What got him into broadcast journalism? What made him want to become a sports reporter? We talk about the path that it took to get there. Plenty of sports media talk, including some of the guys and girls that he's become close with covering the team, going on the road together, kind of being like one large family, at least in some respects, while at the same token, and we discuss this, learning the balance that line between friendship and competition because you always want to be the one to have the best story, the best scoop, stuff like that. We discuss things like that. Like I said, we do talk Buffalo Bills and I'm going to tease this one at the top. I asked him for a take coming out of Bills training camp, a semi-bold prediction on something that would get fans talking and he's got a Cody Ford take that you really need to hear. May not be the most popular opinion, but it really struck me because when I heard it, I thought the exact same thing. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. But like I said, beyond sports talk, I ask him a bunch of human interest questions to wrap the interview up. Things like what his go-to karaoke song would be, what TV show he thinks he could dominate, his favorite city to visit, favorite Twitter follow, his dream dinner table, stuff like that. Really good interview. For that though, man, God, I got to get this off my chest because it's just driving me crazy. As a Buffalo Sabres fan, which I'm going to be honest with you, these days I am still a fan, but not like I was because just years of this team beating me up emotionally, mentally has drained me to the point that I almost don't care anymore. But you got to be kidding me. As if the Sabres season wasn't bad enough, the end of the 2018-2019 NHL season has to freaking end with the St. Louis Blues hoisting a Stanley Cup and Ryan O'Reilly of all people being named the Conn Smythe winner, Stanley Cup Finals MVP. I mean, seriously, come on. Is that not the most Buffalo thing ever? I know that's a cliche thing to say, but seriously, it's the truth. It really is the truth, isn't it? Of course, the Blues would win the Cup, and of course, Ryan O'Reilly is the Conn Smythe winner. Because it's Buffalo, man, it is. When it comes to the Sabres, at least, I don't want to put the Bills in that same category, but this is what this is the life of a Sabres fan. This is the way it goes. It just is. And one more thing. With this Ryan O'Reilly trade last year, okay, you don't need to look up old tweets of mine or check my old Facebook statuses from about a year ago. I'll call myself out right here, okay? I didn't hate to trade at the time, I didn't hate the thought at the time of trading Ryan O'Reilly. I really didn't. I was convinced through media reports and talk shows and articles that I read, stuff like that, that Ryan O'Reilly was just that unhappy in Buffalo and he didn't want to be here. And my attitude at the time was, well, you don't want to be here? Get your ass out, man. Get out. You know what I'm saying? Bye. So I was okay with the trade. But even then, I didn't love the return. That's the problem. It's the it's not that they traded Ryan O'Reilly. It's the trash that they got in return that is the killer. It's the worst. 
okay? Berglund is a quitter. He didn't want to be here. What an opportunity he had to come to Buffalo and be a second or at worst third line center, a leader on this team. He quit. Saboka, don't even get me started. He's the team punching bag and he deserves it because he's freaking awful. He's terrible. Why would you trade for Saboka? Just a terrible move. He represents this last season in a nutshell. Just, just garbage, okay? And then you got Tage Thompson, who I would expect, or I suspect I should say is the key piece. I guess you could call him that of the trade. And I don't know, he's young. Maybe he could grow into something. Not going to say that he, he's a bust quite yet, but tell me, and I'm not talking about playing style, I'm talking about production. Tell me you don't look at him and you don't see Justin Bailey or Will Carrier, these guys who spent years in Rochester who would come up and flirt with the Sabres and you were waiting for them to break through and become an impact player on a team and it never happened. I already feel that way about Tage Thompson. After just one year, I feel about that. And then a, a late first round draft pick, which let's be real, who gives a shit about that? So that's what the Sabres got for giving away a con Smythe winner. It just, it makes me sick, man. It makes me sick. It really does. And I'll tell you what, Jason Bottrell needs to be on the hot seat right now because that's an inexcusable trade, okay? Doesn't matter what I thought about it at the time. I'm an idiot podcaster. And some of you, at least out there, are idiot Sabre fans. So you could have loved to trade at the time too. We're not responsible for this organization. We talk about them. We write about them. We cheer for them. That's what we do. Jason Bottrell is the one who will make or break this franchise. And you can't be making stupid trades like that. It's the dumbest trade in the history of the franchise. It really is. If you want to say that Dominic Hasek coming to Buffalo was the best deal in the history of the franchise, well, you best damn believe that this one's the worst. And if it's not, I'd love for you to tell me what was the worst trade than giving away Ryan O'Reilly for a bunch of garbage. Bunch of garbage. That's what they did because they couldn't make it work. He wasn't happy. He didn't want to be here. He didn't like the locker room. Maybe he didn't like Phil Housley, which by the way, you could put this on Phil Housley saying, well, he couldn't get the best out of Ryan O'Reilly. He couldn't get his attitude right. He couldn't help him off the ice or on the ice. Well, guess what? Phil Housley, also a Jason Bottrell hire. So JB is, is responsible for this, man. This is his mess, okay? And he's well on his way. Jeff Skinner trade aside, which was a great trade, at least for now anyway, it was a great trade last year. But at the same token, he just got rewarded with a $9 million per year contract, okay? $9 million per year. Now, if he doesn't produce four or five years from now, maybe that Jeff Skinner trade last year is not the best thing to happen to this franchise. You know what I'm saying? Because if he doesn't produce, now you're overpaying a guy. Are you over? I'm not comparing him to Billy Lino or anything like that, but it's kind of that kind of deal where you're overpaying a guy who's just not worth it. And if that's the case, well, then maybe that Jeff Skinner trade down the road isn't as great as it looks to be right now. But even that trade aside, this guy just made some bad roster moves, really bad. And he's put this franchise in a worse spot than it's been in a long time. And that's despite having an anchor, a franchise guy like Jack Eichel and Rasmus Dahlin, a generational talent at defense. I don't think this franchise is in good shape at all. I'm going to be honest with you. Maybe Ralph Kruger can hope turn it around. Maybe it is. The head coach has a lot to do with it. But no matter what, it doesn't take away from the fact that the Sabres had a Cod Smythe caliber player on this roster and they gave it away for a bunch of trash. That's on Bottrell and dude needs to be on the hot seat. So the Sabres better get it together or dude should be out on his ass after next season. And if he is and they don't get it together, I think he goes down as 
quite possibly the worst, not just Buffalo Sabres, Buffalo GM, maybe in town history. And I really mean it. I don't think that's a stretch at all. That's just, it's an inexcusable trade. All these young, talented players, you can't get it together. Improve that year, you're gone, man. It, it just disgusts me. Ryan O'Reilly hoisting the Constant Life Trophy physically made me nauseous. It really did. So anyway, enough on that rant. Maybe next week I'll have a Sabres guest on and we'll deep dive into that topic a little more. Don't want to get off the rails too much because I got a really entertaining and fun interview with Thad Brown. So here it is. New CBA to Rochester Sports Director, Thad Brown. All right, my guest today is the sports director at WROC-TV in Rochester. He's also a co-host on the Buffalo Kickoff Live Show before Bills games, and he's a fixture in covering the Bills, Sabres, and several other teams. I'm talking about Thad Brown. What's going on, Thad? Thanks for coming on the podcast. How you doing? Patrick, man, doing good. Uh, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. I was excited to have you on. It's nice to finally be able to hook up. I kind of... I like to get into the Rochester market every now and then. I've had a couple people on, and we'll talk about them later on in the interview. But I kind of want to do the uh, the same pattern that I usually have on with my sports media guests, and that's give fans a chance to know a little bit more about you besides just the work that you do on air. So let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit. You were born and raised in Rochester. What was that like for you? What kind of childhood did you have? What were you into as a young kid? I mean, I was probably the, the, the normal sports-loving kid. You know, I played, uh, I was in a bowling league when I was in first grade, played Little League Baseball all the way up through um, Pop Warner football. And, you know, my, my love of sports really comes from a love of numbers because when I was, what, two, three years old, I would take the newspaper and spread like the agate page of the sports section on the floor. And I would just study, you know, the scores and the stats and all the lists. And, you know, when I got a little older, you know, one of the things I loved to do was on Monday when they had, you know, the full scoreboard of, of all the NFL scores, I would recreate the scoreboard page. Like I take a ruler out and I'd make lines. I do a box score and it'd have, you know, bills on top and dolphins on the bottom. And I'd write in every first, first quarter, seven points, second quarter, three points. And then very meticulously, I would write in, you know, like uh, Steve Christie, 24 yard field goal with 10 Oh five to go in the first quarter. Oh, wow. I mean, all that number stuff. I was, I mean, one of the other things I used to do all the time, I remember this, I would go through, you know, not maybe every day, but most days I would go through the box scores of all the baseball games, searching for a game where there was at least one run in every inning. Like I would, it was just the, the fascination with the different combination of numbers, you know, what they meant, you know, how important they were. And, and that's really where I got my start. I'm still, you know, I, I'm the guy that, you know, if you need to do like 15 times 405, you know, I'll give it to you off the top of my head, you know, sometimes faster than that calculator can. So, and then once they, in school, once they started putting letters in for numbers, I hated it. But as long <laughs> as it was numbers, I was totally good. <laughs> were you always a Bills and Sabres kid because of the region that you grew up in? Or did you grow up like in other teams? Who were who your few of your favorite athletes when you were young? I've got to have the weirdest combination of teams for, for this region. And they all have their own stories. I grew up a New York Jets fan because football is my first love. I started watching when I was four years old. 
and my favorite color was green. So I saw the Jets, and they were green, so they were my team. If I had seen the Eagles first, I would have been an Eagles fan. You know, uh-huh. I didn't know any better. Yeah. But I can, I can go back to the uh, the 81 Jets-Raiders playoff game before 82, I'm sorry, before the Jets-Dolphins AFC Championship game. It was the first football game I can remember watching. Um, I've also, I also grew up a Milwaukee Brewers fan because I started watching baseball the year they went to the series against the Cardinals. I still follow them hard. In fact, I got their game up tonight. Right now they're losing to somebody. Anyway, um, I, I'm a Sixers fan because I followed, started following NBA the year after they won the title in 83. And then I became a Winnipeg Jets hockey fan because I, I didn't really follow hockey, but you know, me, me being me and reading the sports section every day, I kept on seeing Jets pop up in a box score in like February and March. So I just, I just kind of got behind them and I went down, I moved with them down to Phoenix when they went down there. And then when the Winnipeg Jets came back, you know, I, I switched back to them. So I'm a, I'm a Jets, Jets, Sixers, Brewers fan. And the, the caveat to this is I may be the last great curse in sports because those four teams, since I started following them, have gone to combine 139 seasons without winning a championship. <laughs> so, so, you know, forget the Cubs, forget the Red Sox. Thad Brown is the best curse going right now in sports. <laughs> now, keep in mind, you know, I, I know you got a lot of Bills fans who listen to you, and I, obviously I cover the Bills now too. So, you know, I didn't grow up a Bills fan, but, you know, people ask me all the time, how do I balance that? If the Jets go to the playoffs, I watch the playoffs on TV like you and everybody else does. Right. If the Bills go to the playoffs, I go to the playoffs. Right. So the Bills going to the playoffs is totally fine with me. And in fact, you know, my dream game is covering a Bills Jets AFC championship because I can't lose either way on that. Right. I, you know, the last 20 years or so, that's been like a figment of everybody's imagination for really both teams. But but that is my dream every year. That is, I've never heard a combination of teams like that. That's like kind of a lottery ping pong type of scenario where you had those teams. And it's funny that you like to just because of the color green. I remember when Pancho Billy was on this podcast, you know, everyone expected this big, long-winded story about how he became a Bills fan. And the reality was he liked the Bills. He started liking them because he liked their colors. Just like you said. I, I, was, just, I, yeah, I was four years old at the time. You know, what, what can I say? I mean, it's just, you know, my dad was a big Bills fan. And I, I appreciate the fact that he didn't, you know, he didn't push me into liking his team. He kind of let me, you know, you know, find it on, on my own. I'm a Notre Dame football fan like he was. And we, you know, we like to watch those games every once in a while when we can. Um, but, you know, he grew He was a, a Bills fan forever. And, and you know, I, I just love sports. I love football. I, you know, I didn't need my dad to, to get me to watch it. I'd watch it on my own. And, you know, green was my color. And, and that's how, I mean, I, I can, the uniform got me. What can I say? <laughs> now you played sports as a kid. You played football in the cross at Aquinas Institute in high school. Did you like one of those sports playing it better than the other? Were you better at one of those sports than the other? And funny as it was, it turns out I was a pretty good lacrosse player. Um, I, I grew up playing baseball, never really, you know, even thought about lacrosse. And like many kids my age, I had a paper route in my neighborhood. And um, my freshman year of high school, it, it actually it's pronounced Aquinas, um, I tried out for the JV baseball team and was one of the last cuts. Real upset about it, you know, 14-year-old kid, never been cut before, never had to try out before. And I had a guy on my paper route who was an assistant coach on the football team and knew me from playing, you know, freshman football. And he was also a coach on the lacrosse team. And he said, you know what? You're a good athlete. You should try out for lacrosse. The Aquinas had just started its lacrosse program the first year I was there, my freshman year in, in 1991. And uh, the next year, you know, instead of going out for the baseball team again, I said, oh, what the heck, I'll try out for lacrosse. And, you know, I picked it up pretty quick. I ended up being a, a long pole defenseman. Um, I never, now it, this statement has a little bit of a, a caveat to it because again, the program was new, but 
I never not started a lacrosse game that I played in. I was the, I was a starting defenseman for every game that I've ever played in my life. I ended up being a senior all-star. Um, I tried out at the division one uh, level at Hofstra hung in. Okay. Um, you know, got cut my freshman year and, and the coach, uh, John Donowski, who some people may know from his time at Duke. Um, great guy. You know, he, when he cut me, he said, look, you know, I, I got this kid and this kid, and this kid who's leaving next year. You probably got to make the team. But you know, when I went to school, I went to school to, to get into this business and be in TV or radio or whatever. So I decided, to concentrate on that but you know of all the sports even though football is my first love as a sport and the sport i still enjoy watching and covering the most i miss playing lacrosse more than i miss playing anything else that's interesting do you remember a specific time maybe as a young kid maybe a teenager in high school or when you got to college whenever where you decided that sports and broadcast journalism specifically was something that you thought could be a career for you now you talked about as a kid you know, keeping the box scores and the math and all that numbers, that was your love for sports. But when was that point, if you can remember, where you decided that maybe doing broadcast journalism would be something that you wanted to do as an adult? I think like most kids, you know, you, you grow up dreaming to be a professional athlete. I wanted to, you know, be a quarterback or a shortstop or whatever. And, you know, I think it was pretty early on in high school, freshman, sophomore year, when I really understood that that wasn't going to be a possibility. But about the same time, I kind of, you know, I noticed that I was, uh, you know, a good writer and someone who, who did okay speaking in public. And um, I had a, a good teacher in high school, a guy named Ted Mancini, who's uh, still the principal at Aquinas, who was uh, just building a media program over there when I was a sophomore, junior, and really did a great job of encouraging us and, and me in particular to kind of pursue that gave me opportunities to, you know, explore being a broadcaster. Um, my senior year when, uh, Aquinas opened up uh, its, its new gym. This is a gym that still they have now. It's not new anymore, obviously, but in 1994, it was brand new. Right. The first basketball game, first varsity game they played there, um, we did a high school television broadcast of it. And I mean, no one saw it, but you know, the kids on closed circuit TV the next day, but to be able to, you know, put a microphone on and you call a game and, you know, we had multiple cameras, we had a director. It was as real as you could get then, you know, it was, was certainly my first, you know, broadcast finger quotes experience, but that in high school is when I really, you know, realized that this could be a possibility and something I wanted to pursue. Now you mentioned Hofstra for college. I always ask my sports media people this, why did you decide to go there? And were there other schools that you considered going to that you gave thought to going, or was it Hofstra for you pretty much all the way? No, I, you know, Hofstra was my number one. I chose them over uh, Geneseo and Ithaca they were my second and third choice. And, you know, Hofstra had uh, a division one lacrosse team because when I was choosing my college, you know, I had some division three schools and division two schools that recruited me and I wasn't overly interested in playing lacrosse, but you know, if I was going to go to a school, I wanted a school where I had a shot, you know, where, where maybe I could give it a try and see if that's something I really wanted to, to go into. I mean, I only picked up the game as a sophomore in high school, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Hofstra had a, a football team too. I wanted to have the, the college football experience and they had all the, the, different avenues of, of media studies. They had a, you know, a great TV station. They had an awesome radio station. They had a newspaper. So whatever I wanted to do media wise, there was an avenue there, which wasn't, you know, it's not true of every school. I mean, you know, a place like Syracuse, um, obviously everybody knows you can do whatever you want there, but I wanted to be able to, to do and practice, you know, and work on all those different media skills and, and Hofstra had it all, you know, Geneseo was a great place. And, and although I enjoyed my four years at Hofstra, um, as it turns out, I probably could have gotten away with going to Geneseo, save myself a whole lot of money in student loans. But, uh, you know, I really enjoyed my four years at Hofstra. Um, the radio station, we broadcast, um, 
basketball games and football games. So I traveled to Texas. I was in San Francisco for a weekend with the basketball team. Um, we went all over the Northeast. I mean, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, Delaware, Maryland, you know, doing, um, battle football and lacrosse. I even did a, a volleyball NCAA tournament game at Notre Dame and got to run around at Notre Dame stadium before the game. So a, a whole lot of great experiences at Hofstra. You know, I got to meet a whole lot of people that I keep in touch with, probably not enough, but um, you know, Hofstra really had just kind of all the pieces that I wanted. How important was it for you, that experience that you got in college? You know, some people with the line of work that they end up in, maybe college isn't the right thing for them. They don't necessarily need to go to college. But in your case, with broadcast journalism, obviously it's very important, not just for the degree aspect, but also for the experience aspect, being able to work on a college station, things like that. I would think that going into your field, that that really was valuable to you. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that at Hofstra, you know, I got to do, I mean, I did everything. And when I was a sophomore in college, I was the, uh, the sports director of the radio station, the sports editor of the newspaper, the sports anchor of the sports station or the TV station. And, uh, you know, I also worked in the sports information department for my work study job. So it was crazy. You know, I know it's a bit of a humble brag, but just the, the fact that you were able to do everything and, you know, in a place like Syracuse, you know, you might have to wait till your junior year to sure. even get involved in anything, you know, yeah. but at Hofstra, whatever, if I wanted to put the time in, you know, I could do it. And, and the experiences I had, I don't think most college kids, again, even in a place like Syracuse, are going to get a chance to have. I mean, I, I did, you know, a hundred live broadcasts over the years. I did football, I did soccer, volleyball, softball, baseball, men's basketball, women's basketball. They didn't have a hockey team around. I probably would have done that too. So I, I really, you know, I really treasure the experiences I had at Hofstra. But the funny thing is about my career, um, you know, when I was at Hofstra, I did an internship at, at News 8 in Rochester. And, you know, meeting John Kutchko and, and working at Channel 8, you know, really is where my career began. And I, I probably could have done that without going to Hofstra, but, you know, I would have missed out on all those games. So, I, you know, um, I mean, obviously, like I said, the, the student loan thing is a big deal and, and maybe saving a little money wouldn't have been bad. But, um, you know, the, that, that extra money I spent at Hofstra was well worth it for all the, the good experiences I had. Yeah, no, after school, like I said, you got a job, Doug ROC in 98. You've been on the air since the summer of 2000. Let me ask you about that station first. How did that opportunity come about for you to get a job there? Now, I know you left for one year for another station. We'll talk about that in a second. But first and foremost, how did that opportunity at WROC come about? You know, like I, I interned with John Kutchko in the summer of 1996. And uh, the internship was, you know, it's just one of those chance things. My mom worked with his wife at one of the high schools in town. And, and you know, my mom said, hey, my son is into this. You know, could, could you meet your husband and intern? And sure. And you know, I, I did a good job in the internship and pressed John, you know, and stayed in touch. And, and this is what I tell interns now, you know, that when, when you're trying to get a job, you know, the best thing you can do with an internship is, you know, sure, do a good job and wow people, but make a contact, you know, keep in touch with that contact, you know, keep talking with them. And, you know, I, I kept on, I'd, I'd come back and help John with, you know, big golf tournaments or some events like that. And in 98, when I graduated, you know, he, he knew of a job, a behind the scenes editing job at, at News 8 in Rochester. And that's how I started, you know, on five days a week, um, taking the, the feeds of national news and, and editing that up for the, for the newscast. And, you know, not a, not a big important job, but a job that's necessary. And more importantly, a job that gets you in the door and pays you. And, and that's, that's how you get your start just by, you know, continuing to stay in touch and, and, you know, being, uh, available and I guess aware of what's going on, you know, at a place you've been before. Now, you left at one point for a year to cover sports in Binghamton, and then you came back to News 8, and you've been there ever since. What was that process like for you leaving 
and then coming back. Going to Binghamton was one of the best years of my life. And, and I tell, again, I tell kids all the time, you know, you're going to start out in a place where, um, you know, you're making nothing, you know, very few people are probably watching you. You're covering the, the smallest of the small events, you know, things that you might not have even known existed before you got down there to work, but you're doing that in an experience where everybody around you is in the same boat. Everybody's new. Nobody's making any money. You know, you're all, um, you know, eating ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly to survive. Lottie, I, I worked a second job in Binghamton and in the mornings I'd, you know, go to Wegmans, um, and, uh, stock shelves, you know, with the Wegmans across the street, basically from the station I worked at, mm-hmm. I'd work that from seven to like 1230, go home, take a nap, eat some lunch, and then go to the station and work three to midnight. Not every night, but a lot of nights like that. And, you know, I had cars break down and, um, I, you know, the, the saddest story about, you know, trying to grind it out in a small market, um, was, uh, my, my first car I ever owned broke down, like in the winter, I was down there, January, February, something like that. So I, I had to walk. The Wegmans that I worked at wasn't far. It was maybe, I don't know, a 10-minute walk. But it was a 10-minute walk across the giant expressway and in the middle of winter. So, you know, snow up to your ankles or whatever. And this one day I was walking to work. Uh, I was literally kind of straddling over a guardrail to go across an entrance ramp to get to the, the store. And, uh, the pants I was wearing caught on the entrance ramp and like ripped up the thigh. So I'm halfway to Wegmans. It's like 10 degrees outside wind blowing. And I've got a pair of pants on that are, you know, totally ripped. So I'm like going into buildings to stay warm because my leg was, you know, I was nervous about getting frostbite or something. It was right. really yeah, cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I get the Wegmans finally, and I had to like duct tape up the pants. So, you know, at some one point in my life, I'm working at Wegmans with a pair of pants and a duct tape on. I must have looked like the poorest sap, you know, ever to walk the face of the earth. But, you know, that was that was your, your first year in, in television. You know, you're, you're scraping by, you're grinding, you're, you do what you got to do. You know, and eventually I was able to, you know, turn that into a, a better opportunity up here in Rochester. You've been sports director at TV News 8 since 2016 what was that moment like for you being named sports director and just being sports director in general i mean that's a really cool gig and a nice title for somebody who grew up loving sports like you did for me you know the the really good moment was just coming back home you know and i mean sports director was great but you know the, the thing i always remember was when i got the you know got the first job on air in rochester and um you know my grandmother who passed away 6 7 years ago um you know being able to call her and say hey you know i'm going to you're going to be able to see me work on tv all the time and telling my family i was coming home because most of my family is is still in rochester and that that was probably the big moment for me sports director though i mean there's definitely the the privilege of being you know the one who's on the air all the time the one that people see on a regular basis and, you know, the also the responsibility of, of following the bills, you know, game to game, which right. is a responsibility that a lot of sports directors in, in both Buffalo and Rochester get now. So, you know, I, I am essentially the, the bills beat reporter on top of being a sports director. And, you know, it's, it's fun to be at all 16 games. It's fun to be, you know, at ground zero for all these things that that people talk about. You know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, the best part about this job is, you know, when when we go to a press conference and, you know, Sean McDermott says some six second thing that people are talking about for weeks and weeks. Well, I, I was, I was there. So I can tell you, you know, the, the thing he said before that and the inflection of in voice when he said it, and you know, the question that was asked before that, and the thing he said a week ago that led to that question to have all that context, you know, for this six second piece of sound that everybody in, in 
you know, Western New York is going to talk about for days or weeks on end. That's, that's the biggest thrill of it for me to, you know, to be able to understand everything that goes into, you know, this team that people, you know, in, in a lot of ways live and die with. Yeah. I've had several Buffalo bills based reporters on this podcast. And it seems for the most part that you guys and girls have really good relationships. You travel with the team on the road. I'm sure you've gotten to know a lot of these reporters from around the league as well, not just Buffalo bills reporters. Is it pretty safe to say that that Buffalo contingent, Western New York contingent, Rochester, et cetera, you're more close knit than a lot of other cities, a lot of other teams. It, it feels to me from people that I've talked to, it seems like, I mean, it's not always harmony, but the Buffalo Bills group of reporters, you guys seem to be a lot closer than other teams beat reporters. Yeah, I would say so. You know, I think, um, I think one of the main things is, is, is there are a lot of us who are the only, are the ones who do it. It's the same group. You know, and I think in a, in a bigger city like a New York or Boston, you might see, now you'll see beat writers who follow the team, but you know, when it comes to local TV, other places like that, you won't see the same people going on the road. But you know, last year, um, we had, you know, what I would call little Bill's road family. It was, you know, myself, um, Jenna Cottrell from uh, Wham here in, in Rochester, John Scott from Spectrum, Heather Prusak from WGRZ, and uh, you know Josh Reed, obviously from WIVB, was involved. Sal Capaccio would hang out with us sometimes too. But but we were kind of the group, you know, that on every road game, you, you get into a place on Saturday all the time, and, and Saturday night's kind of free, and and you know you just got nothing better to do but go out for dinner and, and see the town. And, you know, we, we hung out with each other every week and, and really got to know each other. And, you know, it, it's, it, it was, like I said, it felt like a road family almost. And, you know, I hope I'm not speaking, you know, out of turn for all those guys, but I really enjoyed, you know, having, having good people like that to get along with. And I don't want to, you know, leave on me out because, you know, the Joe Biscalias and Matt Fairburns who come on the road all the time, Tim Graham, you know, Sal Mayorana, um, all those guys, you know, we, we all, you know, get along pretty well and, and know each other and respect each other's work and we're competitive. You know, we're, we're trying to get a, a, the better story or the better piece of video or the better tweet. But, um, you know, I can't ever think of a time where, and this goes back all the, the 19 years that I've covered this team to where I was not happy about going on the road because I was going to have to deal with person X, you know, that, sure. that never happens. It, it's always, you know, one of the, it's fun to be able to go on the road with an NFL team, but the people that we work with in, in, in these two towns certainly increase that, that level of enjoyment. I think that mirrors what a lot of the guys that you mentioned who have been on the show kind of say the same thing about the relationships with you guys, which does lead and you hit on this a little bit too. That a question that I have when you cover a team or a sport over time and you develop these relationships and friendships with competing newspapers and websites, TV stations, radio, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. On one hand, these men, these women, they're, they're your friends. But on the other hand, like you said, you kind of want to kick their ass when it comes to getting that scoop or putting out the best story, having the best soundbite, whatever it is that maybe that they don't or that you just do it better. Is that ever a tricky line sometimes being able to balance that, that line between friends and competition. Like I said, you definitely want to win that Newsday. Of course you do, but maybe it sucks in some ways coming at the expense of somebody that you're friends with or no, or am I completely off there? No, I don't, I don't think, I think the thing that, that you don't have to worry about is that very rarely does it come at the expense of somebody else. You know, if you get something good, it's because you were aware and they weren't, 
or you were in the right place and they weren't. Right. It's not because you, you pushed them out of the way or, or did something underhanded. I mean, look, we've had arguments, you know, I mean, there've been times where we've disagreed about, you know, you, you were here, I was supposed to be here first. And, you know, those things happen. You can't, you can't live. I mean, you know, if you have a, a family and, you know, you have brothers, you may love your brother, but yeah, you guys get into a fight every once in a while. These things do happen. But when it comes to the competition, it, it's almost like, um, it, it's almost like golf in terms of, you're playing against yourself. You know, you're not really competing against the other person. You've got to know the team. You've got to know what to expect. You know, a great example was um, last year when the Bills beat the, uh, the Vikings in Minnesota. And one of the things that we've all kind of gotten in the habit of doing is we will uh, take our phones to the locker room area where the bills are coming off the field to the tunnel, Mm -hmm. um, coming off the field, going to the locker room. And, you know, obviously there's a big win, unexpected win, you know, and and this is a great opportunity to get the bills fired up. And, and they're, you know, the players, you know, are just as happy to play to the camera because they want to, they want to show, you know, they want to kind of get back at everyone who told them they couldn't win. So as the guys are coming off the field, everybody's fired up. Josh Allen, Lorenzo Alexander, they're all saying things to the, the group of us who are standing there with our phones rolling, you know, getting pieces of, video and I was standing there with John Scott and, and Josh Reed who are great guys and I love working with them and we're all getting different pieces of video and um, I don't remember who it was that came by it might have been Lorenzo who said something to Josh Allen and they shook hands or patted each other back and it was a real good moment and I noticed the two of them you know um, putting their phones down to kind of tweet those moments out to get it out first and I kind of saw Trey White a little off the distance. I said, you know what? I'm not going to worry about, you know, sending that tweet out right now. I'm going to wait and see what Trey white and maybe the other guys do. Well, as Trey white comes up, um, he, uh, he looks right at my phone. He's I'm the only one who's holding one up. And he says, you like that? Which was the Kirk cousins line from yeah. the year before. <laughs> so I ended up, you know, just, by happenstance, but because I was, I was recognized that Trey white was there and, and, you know, played my hand for, you know, waited for Trey white, hoping he would give me something better. I got lucky there and he did give me something great. So I tweeted that out. I was the only one who had it. You I know, remember it featured that. NBC. Yeah. Featured NBC sports that night. And it, it was just because, you know, it wasn't because I had to get in John Scott's way or push Josh Reed down or slam their phones out of their hands. It was <laughs> simply because I personally, you know, made a better decision that day. And the funny thing was, John Scott came up to me later and, you know, and they were cool. And he's like, Hey, good job. And he pointed out that the year before in Atlanta, which when the bills won a similar game, no one thought they could win. When we were allowed to go in the locker room, um, I had a problem. My camera didn't have it ready. John Scott did have his camera ready. And when we burst in the locker room, the two of us were the first two in front. LaShawn McCoy's in the locker room. He went right to the camera and said, no one thought we'd win this game. No one thought we'd win something to that effect. Yeah. 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 And, because my camera wasn't ready to go because I screwed up. I didn't have that. And John Scott did. And John Scott tweeted that out after that game. And that became the big tweet piece of video for the week. And he asked me later, he's like, you're standing right there. How come you didn't get it? And I had a camera issue, blah, blah, blah. So last year with the Vikings game, John Scott, knowing that, that, you know, he made the wrong decision said, Hey, you know, now we're even for the Atlanta game. And we had, we laughed about it over beers and, and that's, that's how the competition works. You know, in both situations, we each got a unique piece of video. That was a big get, you know, great engagement, retweets, likes, favor, whatever you want to call it. And it wasn't because we got each other's way. It's just about you handling your own business and being ready to go and being prepared and, and knowing the good chances to take. Who do you consider a couple of your biggest influences in sports media? You know, people who have really influence your career or influence the way that you like to try to cover sports? 
Well, I, you know, I'm a child of the '90s, so you, you, you got to say Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. I mean, that Sports Center was required watching growing up, and and you know, I love the fact that not only those two guys, but you know, others that have followed back when Sports Center and highlights were, you know, that was the only place where you got them. They, to me, made it fun. You know, it was they were smart. They were interesting. They told a good story, but they made sports fun. And, and that's why I thought a lot of people gravitated towards those ESPN shows. That's why I did. You know, you, you watched it to see the highlights, but you watched it because it made you smile. It was fun. Sure. And, and that's what I try to do now in sports. You know, I, I have three rules when it comes to broadcasting. Number one, be right. Number two, be first when you can. But number three, have fun. You know, all the, the, the news that people get, whether it's, you know, radio or, or newspaper or, or, you know, Internet or social media or television, the news portion of the show is very often a downer. And frankly, in Western New York, the weather portion of the show is frankly a downer. Sure. So for, for sports, sports has an opportunity to be different, but sports should be fun. Sports should give you a smile. Sports should, should you know, make you, you know, you should be able to enjoy it. Even if I'm talking about a Bills 3-13 and 13 season or the drought, which we talked about forever, or the Sabres this year for the last four months. Yeah, you know, the teams are, that people locally are rooting for aren't doing well. But it doesn't mean that we have to be miserable or, or be serious. Have fun with it. You know, be clever. Be unique. Um, you know, give people an, an opportunity to enjoy, you know, what you're talking about. Because end of the day, you know, sports is supposed to be the distraction. Sports is supposed to be the thing that gets you away from the news or, or the snow and all the you know, bad things going on in the world. So, you know, I grew up watching those ESPN guys and enjoyed it. And I hope people feel the same way when they watch my broadcast on Newsday and other places. Let me ask you this question. We could probably spend four hours talking about all the fun things about your job from traveling, just being able to be at the stadium, covering, getting to know players, stuff like that. But what is the hardest part of your job? What would you say is the part of your job that's the least fun, like maybe a part that the average casual sports fan may not even think of? Number one, um, and, and not necessarily the, the biggest one, but, but number one that people have to realize, especially about local media, is that by and large, the money is not superb. Um, you know, there are places where you can make a lot and you, and you can work your way up to a position where you make a lot of money, but there are a lot of people who do this job, you know, social media writers, whatever, who, who I think people think because you're on TV, you make a lot of money. This is not the case. You know, it's, it's supply and demand. There are a lot of people who want this job. So, you know, it doesn't have to be paid that much. Sure. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not, I'm not destitute or anything, but right. I, I think people feel like, Oh, I watch you on TV. You must make a lot of money. It's just not that way for the large majority of people working this business. But I'd say that the biggest difficulty is the schedule. Um, you know, I, I worked Saturdays and Sundays for the first 20 years of my life. I, I worked seven Christmases in a row. I, I worked Thanksgiving all the time. Um, you know, I work nights, you know, there's a, a, a lot of days now, you know, I, I have an 11 year old daughter. There are, you know, days during the week, especially in football season where I'll get up in the morning, I'll put her on the bus and then I won't see her again until the next morning because right. I have to work, you know, nights and, and, you know, obviously sometimes in weekends. So, you know, the, the time away from home, the time, you know, when, when, um, you know, I think a lot of people would, you know, normally come home from work five, six o'clock, spend time with their families every day, five days a week, you know, full days on the weekends. We don't get a lot in that business. And I certainly don't get a lot of that. So, you know, the schedule is, is the toughest thing. And it's not just the, the hours that you know, you have to work, you know, in this business, um, I've been called in to work New Year's Eve because the bills fire a coach. Um, I, I got called one, one year, um, not too long after Sandy hook happened. And, and a lot of people will remember this story, <laughs> excuse me. Um, 
there was a, a fire set in Rochester uh, the morning of Christmas Eve, um, and the fire was set by a, a, unfortunately, you know, very uh, uh, out of mind individual, someone who wasn't in their right mind, who wanted to attract first responders and then shoot at them. And um, this man ended up killing a police officer and a firefighter, wounding two others. And, you know, the moment that news broke on Christmas Eve morning, you know, I knew even though I was a sports guy, I knew that was a story that I was going to have to come in and work. And I can remember, you know, um, seeing the the news on Twitter and just waiting for the call. And then it came and I ended up, I go up and get showered and I come down, I'm all dressed up to go into work. And my wife sees me. She's like, oh you're ready for church already. I'm like, uh, no, hon, I, I have to go into work. And, you know, my, my wife was not happy that day, but you know, she, she understands. And, and I think people working in this business understand that, you know, th- this, this job, you have to work when the events happen. Fortunately for me in sports, most of the time, the events are not, you know, tragedies like that one, but, um, there are enough events that happen unpredictably that you have to be ready for that sometimes require you to, to work on a day when you plan to play golf or you plan to be home with your family. And, you know, it does get rough at times, but, um, you know, like any job, there are pros and cons and you know, that's a con the pros are pretty good too. Yeah, for sure. Let me ask you this. Who would you consider the toughest athlete or coach? that you've ever had to deal with. I'm not necessarily saying the biggest jerk or the worst human being. I'm just saying the most difficult, somebody who maybe they made your job harder than it needed to be. It's a great question because I could, I could give you the jerks left and right. Um, you know, in terms of a, a difficult person, I, I would, you know, I have to say that the people that were the jerks are probably the ones that, that did it. You know, um, the ones that, that get in your way and, and, and don't want to, you know, respect the job that you're doing. I think by and large, you know, uh, most athletes are, are, um, you know, pretty, I don't want to say appreciative, but at least they understand what you're trying to do. And, and as long as you, you know, come in, do your homework, have your, you know, have your questions researched and, and, you know, are respectful of their time, I think they'll give you their time. But, um, you know, the, the one that, you know, you might've heard already, the one that I would probably bring up all the time is uh, John Fina, you know, the, the former Bills offensive lineman. Yeah. He, he just did not want you around. And, you know, made no bones about letting you know that. And, I'll, I'll tell you, know, you what, I've had him on this podcast and I, it, it wasn't even all these years later, I know what you're talking about and you're right. And it still was, uh, it was a, a, a tricky thing to get him to kind of open up about anything really on the show. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah, that's okay. No, I mean, he was, he was the kind of guy, you know, I think, I don't know if people understand this, but if you probably pay attention when you watch, you know, Bill's interviews during the season, a lot of interviews happen at a player's locker. Right. Well, very rarely is there enough space at the locker to accommodate all the media that are there. So we always end up standing in front of the locker or maybe even two lockers next to whoever we're interviewing. Well, if you had to interview the guy next to John Fina, you know, you had to keep a, your head on a swivel because John Fina would just bump you over. I mean, he just didn't care. You know, if you, if you were in his way, he was going to, he yeah. was going to, you know, move you out of the way. I mean, he wouldn't truck you, you know, you, you weren't a defensive lineman as he pulled for you, but boy, he, he was not going to respect your time. And a funny story about that. One of the, the fun things I get to do in this job is uh, occasionally be invited to a high school or an elementary school for like a career day, you know, talk about your job, yeah, what it's yeah. like. And, and invariably, you know, there'll be a question and answer period and people will say, you know, who is the best person to deal with? Similar to what you said, who was the worst? And, and I'll bring John Fino. So I was doing, you know, this routine at one of the elementary schools in Rochester. And after the, uh, the, the session was over, one of the kids came up to me and he says, you know what? John Fina is my uncle, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I looked at the kid and I said, 
I looked at him for a second. I said, I'm sorry, but everything I said is true and I will stand by it. And he said, I understand. I understand. So, yeah. um, you know, it's just, he's always the guy, you know, Peerless Price is another rough one to deal with. And, and I will say that, you know, although I can name the, the bad guys and, and they've been billed so far, the bills, 99.8% of them have been really, really good to deal with. You know, I think we've been lucky with, with this locker room because you see stories of, of a few guys here and there from other places that seem like a pain in the neck. And, and, you know, the bills, especially the last 15 years or so have been, you know, one of the better locker rooms I've ever dealt with. I've been fortunate to have two very good Rochester sports reporters on this podcast previously, Dan Fates and Jenna Cottrell, who you mentioned earlier. Obviously, you know both of them very well. What could you tell us about them? I mean, great workers. You know, the the two of them work together in Elmira and, and are, are pretty close in, in a in a platonic way. I don't want to get any rumors started. Um, <laughs> you know, the Dan's married and, and Jenna's in a, in a pretty serious relationship as far right. as I know. So, yep. but but they they get along great, and you know, Dan especially. Um, you know, I've had a chance to work with him here the last three years. Always willing to do whatever it took to help the team. Um, you know, a really good writer. I mean, you, you talk about the the Sports Center, the Keith Overman, Dan Patrick influence. Dan Fades can turn a phrase on a highlight as good as anybody I've ever seen. You know, especially for someone as young as he is too. But just a great attitude. Um, love having him around. You know, a fun guy to chat with. Knows his betting lines. You want to follow him if you're a gambler. Trust me, Dan Fades on Twitter. Look it up right now. <laughs> and, and then. And then Jenna is just, just the nicest person. I mean, you know, always a smile, you know, um, you know, always great to deal with. I mean, again, she's part of the, the road bills family or was last year. Hopefully she will be again this year. Um, so I, you know, I couldn't say enough nice things about both of them. Just great, great people. And especially Dan, Dan's a Rochesterian like me. So it's good to, to see that we breed the Rochester media people pretty good out here. <laughs> yeah, you do. So I have at least a couple Buffalo bills questions that I want to ask you since I have you on this podcast. Gotta talk a little bills at least. But before that, I do got one other question about this is about social media and particularly Twitter. It's such a double-edged sword. And as a sports reporter, a public figure, I'm sure you know this very well. On one hand, Twitter could be awesome because you get your stories out right away. It's instant news. It's an opportunity to have relationships with fans, answer their questions, just be involved and interactive. So in that regards, it's great. On the other end, of course, and I'm sure you know this, it just invites trolls and nasty people into your life. It can be a really cruel place to be, frankly, on Twitter. People will say things, not, they, maybe they don't even mean them. They just say it to get under your skin. And their sole purpose in life, pretty much, is to get a rise out of you. You know what I'm saying? It's a very tricky line to balance. What is your feelings on social media and particularly something like Twitter. Well, I mean, you know, especially during football season, you know, I get someone telling me I have no clue what I'm talking about on a daily basis, you know, and, and you just have to have a thick skin for it. You have to be able to deal with it. And, you know, I, I try to, to use what I call the ignore button. You know, they don't have one, but I don't like to mute people. I don't like to block people. You know, if, if someone says something I don't like, I just, I just don't talk back to them. I let it go. And I, I learned a while ago that, you know, I have to be, judicious about the Twitter arguments I get into because 
it will engross me. I mean, I, I will, I like the, uh, the, the critical thinking. I like the debating. I like, you know, you know, trying to, to have that point to, you know, kind of win the argument. And, and, you know, if you're not careful on Twitter, you'll go down that rabbit hole about anything and, and get stuck on something and waste an hour. So uh, I've tried to stay out of it as much as possible lately. Now, something I'm passionate about, you know, and I think that I want to have a, a statement about, I'll put it out there, even if people don't agree. Um, but it, it's just, it's something that I think can, can suck you in, in terms of trying to just win the argument. You know, you, you're not going to really sure. gain anything. You know, you're not, it's not going to make you a better person or gain your followers in most cases. It, it's just trying to, to get back at that person who behind the keyboard said something nasty at 280 characters. And I think a lot of people get sucked into that and, and, and I get it. You know, I get sucked into it too. I really have to, to, to fight it off to try and, you know, not be too dialed into it. But you know, Twitter is kind of the Google search engine now. I mean, you can still obviously search things on Google, but you know, there are a lot of times where if I want to get an update on something, I'm going to search on Twitter before I'm going to search on Google. And, and it is fun to be able to put something out there and, and see, you know, all the people who enjoy it, all the people who retweet it and comment on it. You know, it, it, it's nice in this business. I had a, a tweet last year where um, I got a video of Josh Allen high five and all the guys, they went out in the field for a Patriots game and, you know, to see all the Bills fans, you know, retweet and get excited about that. It, it's fun to have an opportunity to, to give people a little bit of a thrill, you know, even if it's like a five second, one click thing, you know, it's, it is a nice thing to do. And Twitter is a, a certainly a very unique avenue to make that happen. Yeah, no doubt about it. All right. So let's jump into the bills for a few minutes here. You've been covering a team for a long time. Do you remember a period of time where going into training camp in July next month? They're probably the biggest storyline, quite possibly maybe even the funnest storyline, maybe covering the offensive line and how that plays out. That's usually a boring part of the team that people don't care much about. And there's not a lot of question marks going into a training camp, but that's definitely not the case with the Buffalo Bills this year. Big storyline, maybe the biggest. Do you agree with that? I think, I don't know if the offensive line is the best story. It is the most unique approach to building a line I can ever remember. Yeah. You know, the, the Bills basically this year have taken like nine guys. It, it almost feels like they're taking nine darts and throwing them on a dartboard and figuring at least five of them have to hit. And they might be right. They might be right. There are good candidates, you know, to play on this offensive line. The other part of why I think, you know, you might feel that way and why you might not be wrong is that, you know, what's the story on the defense? I mean, how much are we going to talk about who the second corner is going to be? Otherwise, it's, we know who the ends are. We know who the linebackers are. Right. We know who the safeties are. We know Trey White's going to be phenomenal. You know, Ed Oliver will be a thing, but, you know, he's a rookie with promise. There isn't a whole lot of things to talk about on defense, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing because that defense is set. You know, people are confident in it. They should be. It should be very good. So that leaves the offense, you know, and, and I think if you want to talk about the O-line, I'm down for that discussion. I think that the receivers are a fascinating debate. You know, how good is Cole Beasley? How good is John Brown? How good can Robert Foster be? Might be the one that, that I like the most. And even at running back, you know, I know people, you know, like to poke fun at the Bills geriatric running back core, but I really think, and I might be on an island list, I think LaShawn McCoy, still has one, maybe two really good seasons left in him. I don't think he lost that much from last year. I still think that he can be, you know, at age 30, 
a guy who can do 90% of what he used to do, maybe 85%. And that's still better than a whole lot of people in the NFL. I might be wrong about that. You know, he might be, you know, uh, too far over the hill to come back, but that's not what I saw in film last year. So I still think McCoy can be a factor. I'm interested to see if that's how it plays out when the season begins. Well, so then you're one of those guys who's in the camp that you believe Brandon Bean of everything he's been saying this entire offseason, because there's also some people who think that that's not the case and that, Shady might be the odd guy out. I, I tend to agree with you. I think if nothing else, he certainly is going to get every opportunity in the world. You look at that running back position because I feel like along with the offensive line, that is the other position where things aren't really settled, at least maybe not on the back end, just because there's so many candidates. Frank Gore didn't come here to have two carries a game either. You know what I mean? And then let me ask you this. How surprised were you that the Bills drafted a running back in the third round this year? I figured that since they had Gore, since they signed T.J. Eldon just like a week or so before the draft, and they already had Shady, I figured that running back would be a position that they would put more emphasis on next year. But they used a third-round pick on Devin Singletary in this year's draft, even with those guys. Did that surprise you a little bit? And how do you see that position playing out if Shady is the starter behind him right now for this year? I wasn't that surprised. You know, again, the Bills running backs are old. I mean, bottom line, you know, and there is an inherent risk that goes with that. Now, I know Frank Gore has been great, you know, every year going into this one. There's no reason to expect that um, he won't be very good this year. But, you know, every year older he gets is a year closer to the end. And, there's, you know, it's possible this may be the year. And and obviously, LeSean McCoy wasn't the same back last year that he'd been, you know, three or four years before that. So there is a risk there in having an older group. And, And, you know, being able to inject some youth into that group or at least take a shot with a young guy was something that shocked me especially when you start watching Devin Singletary's film and you know Brandon being raved about it and I can't disagree I mean the guy is electric on on film from what he did you know in college so I wasn't stunned like by that the thing about you know people talk about well maybe they could get rid of LaShawn McCoy you go into this season without LaShawn McCoy in the backfield then what are defensive coordinators game planning for because I know Cole Beasley's better at receiver than what the Bills had. I know John Brown is too, but I don't think either one of those guys are the kind of receivers that defenses worry about. Yeah, they, you know, they're going to respect them. They know they can play and they can do some things, but you're not game planning around that. So if you take LaShawn McCoy off this team, I think coordinators every game are going to just game plan for Josh Allen. And I think it makes it harder for Allen to take that step forward. Now, we don't know if McCoy can still be what he was in the past, but at least for the first few games of the season, at least there's the chance that he could still be the game breaker. And I don't think that's something that Frank Gore's going to offer. I don't think that's something that TJ Yeldon's going to offer. Maybe Singletary can, but you know, you're really kind of, you know, reaching for a little pie in the sky with that one. But you know, I like him. I like the fact they drafted him. Um, I think the bills are going to hope that McCoy can still be on a limited basis. The home run hitter he's been, I think they're going to hope that Frank Gore can take some, some load off his plate and, you know, be that secondary back to, uh, you know, provide some between the tackles carries without wearing McCoy out. And they might hope that Yeldon can become a dependable third down back. Although, you know, it wouldn't stun me to see Yeldon on the outside looking in when the final rosters announced in September. Right. Now, when it comes to Josh Allen, who I think we all would agree with, no matter how you feel about the team, he's the most important player on this team. And you've been around him as much as anybody over this last 12 months or so since he was drafted last year. Do you see a discernible difference in him between this year and last year? And I'm not talking about his arm strength or slinging the ball around the field. I'm not talking about his athleticism. I'm not talking about his decision-making and how it'll obviously need to improve his accuracy. I'm not talking about any of that. 
I'm talking about his leadership and how he's evolving into not just one of the leaders, but the leader on this team. Do you see that with him right now? Kind of like Jim Kelly would be back in the day. He's trying to be, you know, and I think it's good that he has the confidence to, to go and act the leader. You know, and he does a good job with it. I mean, he, you know, he, he's been a quarterback his whole life and, and he's not afraid to, to, you know, to be the part and be the leader, be the example, you know, be the first guy in line, be the guy doing the right thing. I mean, in terms of on the field, you know, I'm, I'm always someone that looks at spring and summer practice with the largest grain of salt you can possibly imagine. I don't take anything from what you see here. I mean, as long as Allen didn't fall on his face and he certainly didn't do that in the spring and summer, um, you know, beyond that, I'm not worried about it. I want to see what he does in camp. I want to see what he does when, you know, guys are hitting around him, even if they can't hit him. I want to see preseason for whatever that's worth. But, you know, really you're not going to get a good gauge on Josh Allen until, you know, five or six or seven starts into the season. I mean, this is a guy that's only had 11 starts in his career. You know, I'm not going to, you know, base any assessment on even that much of game time. So, it's going to be a long time, I think, before we really get a, a confident feel of what Josh Allen's going to be. But from a leadership and a tangible point of view, you know, you got to be encouraged by the fact that he's not afraid to do it. You know, he's not even with a guy like Frank Gore, or LaShawn McCoy, or Cole Beasley, or John Brown, guys who've been around every block the league has to offer. He is still the guy. You know, Josh Allen's the one who steps out in front. Second to last minicamp practice this year. You know, in the middle of practice, Josh gathered the offense around. He said, "Look, guys." I got something I want to say, you know, but we haven't done well. I haven't done well. Let's finish up strong, you know, and whether that works or not, you know, we'll see, but he is at least, you know, grabbing the, the bull by the horns as a leader and doing whatever he can. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit right here. I want you to give me one semi bold. We won't call it big bold, but we'll call it semi bold Buffalo bills prediction coming out of training camp that maybe fans aren't expecting right now. Maybe it's a player getting cut or somebody winning a job that we don't see happening right now at this point. So something semi-bold at least. What do you got? I will say, I haven't thought about this yet, but at some point I was going to come up with one of these anyway. Right now, and I will reserve the right to change this in the next month or so, Cody Ford is not a starter when the season begins. And, and in fact, I'm going to say Cody Ford, barring injury, does not start all season. Um, I was not a fan of the pick. I think the Bills have decent tackles with Deion Dawkins. I'm not a, I think Deion's got to get better than what he did last year. I think Ty and Secchi can be a guy that can be serviceable on the edge. But my bold prediction right now, and I guess I'll limit it to this in terms of that actual prediction, but Cody Ford is not a starter week one of the season for the Bills. Ooh, I like that. I kind of agree with you. I'll tell you, man, I don't think the Bills brought in Ty Naseki. I like him, and I don't think they brought him in to be a swing tackle, to be a backup. I think that's Adrian Waddle's role on this team. And I'm not even sure Ford will end up playing tackle. He could end up playing guard, either him or Deion Dawkins, when it's all said and done. But I got that on my radar now. I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out over the summer. One more Buffalo Bills question right here. What do you think is the realistic expectation that you should have for the Buffalo Bills right now, going into 2019, like record-wise, where they're good enough, where whether it's the fans, the media, even ownership, will be able to feel pretty good about Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott going forward after this season. Where do you think they need to be at? I think to, to feel good, 8-8 eight eight is the minimum. 
you know, I think if this team is seven and nine, which would still be an improvement by wins, I, I think people would still feel disappointed about the season. Granted, you know, if no matter what the record is, you know, as long as it's better than six and ten, if Josh Allen looks a lot more the part, then everything else probably won't even matter. But I think, um, you know, for the Bills to improve wins-wise, Josh Allen will have to improve as well. So to me, eight and eight is the minimum. I think they're a seven to nine win team. You know, I, I think the defense is still very good, but as good as the defense was last year, you know, the Colts lit them up, the Chargers lit them up, the Ravens lit them up. You know, this is, this is still a league where it's hard to play great defense week in and week right. out. So to me, it's about, you know, there this to be a playoff team. It's about the offense. And I love Mitch Morris. I think that signing was fantastic. He's going to do a whole lot for that offensive line and Josh Allen. But beyond that, you know, what do we know that we've got here? You know, I mean, Cole Beasley's been an average slot receiver. John Brown has been, he did one good season. He's kind of been up and down. A lot of the other offensive linemen, Quentin Spain, Inseki's a career backup. Feliciano's a career backup. Cody Ford's a rookie. You know, Spencer Long's a guy that fell out of favor with the Jets. They don't have a great offensive line. So I don't look at this, the rest of this offense and think, wow, there's a lot of good pieces. I think they're better than they were last year. But last year's offense was historically bad. So there's a lot of room to improve before we get to finger quotes good. So, you know, I think end of the day, for this to be a playoff team, it'll be on Josh Allen to take a bigger jump. And, you know, I think expecting that jump from him might be too much. It wouldn't be impossible. Wouldn't stun me, but uh, I'll give them seven to nine wins, probably depending on what Allen does. And there's certainly in, you know, to be in the playoff race, is not out of the question. It would not stun me at all. Might surprise me a little. If they make the playoffs, but I think they're contenders. One last order of business before we wrap up with a traditional mini lightning round. I've heard a lot about you and golf. You're a big golf guy. Where does that passion come from with golf? Um, my grandma and grandpa played all the time. And, you know, I, I just, I love playing mini golf. I love, we actually, when I was a kid with my brother, we would, um, like build little golf holes in our, in our house. We'd have, we had those old, um, like paper folding blocks. I don't know what they were called, but we would like arrange like golf hole. We'd like build them. So there's a hole and we'd play at home. Um, I just always love the game. Always love going out with my grandparents. I can remember, you know, and I, I tell people this all the time. I can remember playing golf pre tiger woods and being on the team and thinking to myself, if my friends saw me, they laugh at me. They make fun of me because before 97, you know, golf was the sport where people wore the weird pants and the wear hats. Right. And, and yeah, you know, you didn't yeah. have any friends, you know, I mean, obviously it's different now. Um, but I, I've always just loved playing. I've always loved, you know, trying to get better. Um, I'm fascinated now. I'm lucky enough to do a, a regular story in the summer where we do golf tips and anybody can find it right now at rochesterfirst.com. You know, we work with great pros in, in Rochester and, and I'm fascinated with the way that, they can, you can get seven pros to teach you a bunker shot and they'll teach it to you seven different ways. And, you know, one way might work for you. A different way will work for me. A third way will work for some other person who's listening to this podcast. That fascinates me, you know, a, a whole lot now and just, you know, continues to exacerbate the love for the game. You mentioned Tiger and how much he changed golf. For that reason, you consider him one of the most influential athletes of any sport ever, because I definitely do because of reasons like you just said. I think I feel like he made golf more popular, more mainstream. I kind of felt the same way. I would have been one of those guys who looked at you that way pre-Tiger Woods. But now everything's changed. I feel like he deserves a lot of credit for that. I mean, he's certainly on the Mount Rushmore. You know, Gretzky, Jordan, you know, Tiger. I don't know who the fourth would be, but he might be number one. You know, I mean, you think about the way the game, just the, the type of golfer 
who's in the game now. I mean, you have athletes, you have guys who work out, you have guys who are, you know, like Brooks Kepka. He's a monster. Oh my God. That guy yeah. can play tight end in the NFL. Yeah. That guy never played golf. The golfer when Tiger came up was Tim Heron, who was overweight and out of shape. Right. You know, and, and now the golfer is, is a workout freak, you know, and, and a guy who, who, you know, pounds the ball. I mean, they're changing courses. They're, they're changing the, the way the ball is developed. So many things that, that, Tiger Woods. I mean, like I said, he made the game cool. You know, I mean, how can you can't say that about anybody else? I can't think of another single athlete who took a game that was not, you know, something that people wanted to do, something that people thought was a fun or, or a great way to spend an afternoon for the most part, and turned it into the things something that everybody does. You know, I mean, people now, you know, I've, um, there are people now. You meet, if, if hey, do you play golf? No. They almost feel like it's a sorry. It's an apology. No, I don't play golf. I'm sorry. It, it, it's just Tiger Woods did that. Tiger Woods changed so many things about the game, and he did it in a way that no other athlete has done that I can ever remember. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We end with a mini lightning round. I'm just going to ask you a handful of random questions. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever the first thing that pops in your mind, that'll be your answer. You good with that? Ready. Let's do it. All right. Well, you know, the first one, you, we might have already, you might have just answered, but Favorite all-time athlete? Tiger Woods. You mentioned a lot of Buffalo Bills reporters earlier on this show. Who's the most entertaining fellow Buffalo Bills reporter that you know? Entertaining. Uh, John Walrow, but maybe not in the way people might think. He, he's more, he's he's awesome in the, like the way he's just off. He's just, I don't know, he beats through his own drum. It's fascinating to watch. He's a great guy. I, I don't want to, you know, make it sound like I'm putting him down, but but he, man, he has his own way of looking at things, and it's completely fascinating. What's a nice, relaxing activity, not counting golf, because that's too easy. What's a nice, relaxing activity you like to do for yourself? I love watching movies, especially with the family. You know, just sitting around, just knowing your day is done, had a good time. And you're enjoying, you know, uh, a couple hours of a story. We like movies a lot. All right. That kind of leads into my next question. What movie have you probably rewatched more than any other? Avengers Endgame, believe it or not. The, the last scene, I look for it. I look it up on YouTube almost all the, almost every night. It, it's really an addiction right now. Okay. Favorite city that you visited? San, uh, Seattle. Who was your first celebrity childhood crush? Stacey Keenan on My Two Dads. I had a picture on my wall in my bedroom. She's great. <laughs> All right. Name a TV game show that Thad Brown could potentially dominate, whether it's current or past. Uh, $100,000 Pyramid. I'll, I'll roll you at that game. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next question here. You're on stage at karaoke. In this world that we're talking about, you're an awesome singer. You're the best singer in the bar. You grab the mic. What song would you be rocking out that's going to get the crowd on their feet singing along to you? What's Thad Brown's signature karaoke song, in your own mind at least? Oh, I was never a music guy, man. I've owned like three CDs in my lifetime. I'm a child of the, the 90s. Um, I don't know. I do get fired up by the uh, the regulator song. I forget who did it. That's a 90s rap song. But Warren probably some, G. Certainly G. some of that era. <laughs> yeah, Warren G. There you go. Yeah. See, I don't even know who did it. But that's a song that I get fired up for all the time. All right. Now, we've pretty much just spent an hour talking about your career in broadcast journalism. Let's say that you never got involved in broadcast journalism in any capacity or that you tried to after school and it just never worked out for you for whatever reason. What do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? 
I wish I would have ended up as like a statistician, a numbers thing, but I tell you what I probably would have done is I probably would have been a store manager at Wegmans. I worked at that all the way up in high school and I love the company and I probably would have stuck with that. I'll tell you what, off track here real quick. As somebody who lived in Buffalo his whole life and now lives in Florida, people ask me all the time, what do you miss most? Wegmans is literally number one. If I could take one piece, one thing from Western New York and bring it to Florida with me, Wegmans would easily be number one. It's not even close either. And as much as people love going to the store and shopping there, working for it is just about as good. Cool. All right. Second last question here. We talked about Twitter earlier. Who's your favorite Twitter follow? Like if Twitter were to send you a note and say, all right, Dad, we got a new policy. You're going to lose all your, all the people that you follow except one. You can only follow one person or one handle on Twitter. What would that one be? I have to scroll through right now. Uh, I'm not going to say Patrick Moran. <laughs> I know it'd be an easy one to do. <laughs> Um, you know, oh, you know what I would do? I might do a uh, fun house. The guy that follows Mike Francesco oh, back awesome. after this, yeah. that that's a, that guy, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit morbid because Francesca is clearly over the hill, but what a, what a, uh, that one or super 70 sports would be my other one. Those are that. Those are both good ones. I follow them both too. All right. Last question here. You could have three dinner guests from any era, dead or alive, celebrity athlete, doesn't matter who it is. Three people at your table have a couple beers, shoot the shit, have dinner with who you got three people. All right. Um, let me think about this for a second. Let's do Tom Hanks would be there. Okay. Um, Charles Barkley for sure. Okay. Um, I probably do. I probably want to have a comedian. Um, I think I do. Adam Chandler or Adam Sandler. I'm sorry. would be the last one. It's funny. I said Chandler. I actually know what Adam Chandler, but no, Adam Sandler would be the last one. All right. So we got Adam Sandler, Charles Barkley. And who was the first? Uh, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Perfect. All right, everyone. Give Thad a follow on Twitter at ThadBrown7. Of course, check out his work at RochesterFirst.com. Thanks, man. It's a lot of fun getting to know you on this podcast. Uh, thanks for doing it. This was cool. Hey, no, I had a good time too, Patrick, man. This is fun. Uh, thanks for having me on. You know, uh, I appreciate all the support and, and having an opportunity to talk and, you know, kind of going through memory lane of life and stuff like that. It was fun. Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranalytics podcast is powered by my company, mattcundellvoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, Maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system. Consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out mattcundlevoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for this episode. Big, big thanks again to Thad Brown, News TV and Rochester Sports Director. That was fun. That was a fun conversation. Besides being just a solid veteran Bills reporter, which Thad certainly is, I learned that he's a really good storyteller. That was the first conversation that I actually have ever had with Thad. So I was kind of learning more about him, just the same as you guys. I was entertained. Hopefully you were as well. And I'll tell you what, man, I really like that take on Cody Ford. When I asked him to give me a Bills, at least semi-bold training camp take. Him not starting in week one, to me, that's pretty bold to say, man. We'll uh, we'll be keeping our eyes out for sure on that over the summer. Coming up on next Tuesday's episode, I'll have Jenna Caleri, sports reporter at 
WKBW TV in Buffalo is my guest. I'm looking forward to that. If you have not yet done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to you within just seconds of being released. That is the biggest reason why to subscribe. You're going to get the new episode before anyone else does. We have new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Don't forget to rate and review the show. I say it every week because it's true. Really helps us grow this podcast tremendously. Last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamaran Tweets. Thanks again for listening. I truly appreciate each and every single person who listens to this show. Have a good weekend. I'll be back next Tuesday with Jenna Caleri. We'll have plenty to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.